John chapter 4, verses 1 to 30. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you because you first loved us. 
and purchased our pardon on Calvary's tree, like we just sang. Lord, we pray that this morning that you would reveal our sin so that we would see what we've been trying to find satisfaction in and that we would repent, that we would turn from our sin and drink from the living water that Jesus gives so that we would never be thirsty again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the 19th century Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers preached a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And in this sermon, Chalmers explains that everyone has desires at every point of our lives. Every one of you is desiring something right now. Some of you are desiring to hear the word preached. Some of you are desiring that the preaching doesn't go too long so that you can watch the Bears game. Chalmers makes this point that it's impossible not to desire. And in order for sinful desires to change, God must implant within us a new desire for Jesus, for himself, to replace those old desires. And so Chalmers says, the true power over the trials and sins of this life is found only in desiring Jesus Christ. Chalmers says that this expulsive power of a new affection weakens and even destroys the power of sin in our hearts. And that's what we see happening to this woman at the well. She is seeking to satisfy her thirst with worldly things, worldly desires, and Jesus offers her something greater, a new affection, a better affection. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at John chapter 3, which talks about Nicodemus and the new birth. And when we compare and contrast Nicodemus with this woman at the well, we see such a stark contrast between the two. It's not accidental that these encounters are written so close together. So think about the differences between Nicodemus and this woman at the well. James Montgomery Boyce helps us with this. He says, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. She was a simple Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She was nameless. He was a man. She was a woman. Nicodemus came at night to protect his reputation. She came at noon because she had no reputation. Nicodemus came seeking. The woman was sought by Jesus. So interesting. What a stark contrast between these two people. And yet John places these two figures side by side to show us that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. Because of unbelief, not everyone is saved. But the glory of the gospel is that everyone, 
regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, of education, wealth, or class, can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone needs the gospel. And because of what we see in this story at the woman at the well, is that the gospel is offered to everyone. If you're taking notes, I've structured this sermon into three parts. In verses 1 to 15, we will see the awakening of thirst. In verses 16 to 26, we will see the root of thirst. And then in verses 27 to 30, we'll see thirst satisfied. And then the main point for this morning, what I hope you see in the text, what I hope you remember as you leave this morning is that is this. Jesus is the Savior who offers living water to all thirsty sinners. Jesus is the Savior who offers living water to all thirsty sinners. All right, let's first look at the awakening of thirst. John gives us the setting for this scene in verses 1 to 6. As we saw last week, Jesus' ministry was increasing. People were flocking to him. John's disciples saw this. Remember, they were jealous. And now we read that the Pharisees started to notice. And so Jesus and his disciples leave Judea and head north to Galilee. And just note, Jesus leaves not because he's afraid of the Pharisees, but because his hour had not yet come. The Father had more for him to do. And as he heads up to Galilee, it says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria. It can be easy to breeze past that phrase, but it's actually extremely significant. And that word had to is the same word that we saw in chapter 3, that word must, right? Do you remember the musts of chapter 3? You must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He must increase and I must decrease. And now Jesus must pass through Samaria. The plan of God would, was always for Jesus to pass through Samaria, to be weary from the heat of the day, and to have a conversation with this woman at the well. This moment was predestined. This woman had been chosen before the foundations of the world. Jesus had to go to Samaria for the sake of his mission. Samaria needed the gospel. So verse 4 is not just a geographical note. Even though passing through Samaria was pretty easy, it was a straight shot, most Jews wouldn't even step foot on Samaritan soil. They would go out of their way. They would cross the Jordan because they hated the Samaritans so much. So who were these hated Samaritans? In 722 BC, the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and took most of the Jews captive. But those Jews who remained in the city ended up intermarrying with other nations. You can find this in 2 Kings chapter 17. And then these people became known as the Samaritans. They were considered half-bred Jews. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile. And they mixed their worship of God with the other religions. And they only accepted the first five books of the Bible as their scripture, 
Which is why Jesus tells this woman, you worship what you do not know. In verse 22. And because of all of this, there was major conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so the fact that Jesus goes out of his way to Samaria is important. He's on a mission to fulfill his father's plan. And he was thirsty. And so he ends up at this well. And this woman is going to play a big part in Jesus' mission. So he passes through. He gets tired. He needs to rest. He's thirsty. He rests besides this well. John's gospel not only points out that Jesus was fully God, but here we see Jesus was also fully man. He was subject to all the weaknesses of this fallen world except sin. He's tired and he's thirsty. And along comes this woman. Look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. All right, so verse 6 tells us that it was about the sixth hour, which most likely means it was noon. So this was the hottest time of the day. Not the time when people typically came to the well to draw water. You would typically go to the well in the morning, in the cool of the day. And yet this woman chooses this time of the day to go to the well because she expects it to be deserted. The fact that she is coming to the well to draw water at noon tells you something important about her. She's an outsider. There's probably a reason that she's not going to the well when other people are there. But Jesus is there, alone, because his disciples had gone shopping for food, and he asked her for a drink. He's thirsty. And this woman responds to Jesus by talking about gender and ethnicity. You're a Jewish man. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are we having this conversation? This was uncommon. It was actually looked down upon. It says in verse 9 there, John gives that point of clarification. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We know that there was ethnic hostility there. And then for a man to be talking to a woman, especially a rabbi in this culture, was unheard of. And yet Jesus doesn't mind crossing these boundaries. He crosses, crosses that ethnic barrier. He crosses the gender barrier. In those days, religious leaders would lose their reputation if they talked to a woman in public, even if it was their wife or their daughter. And yet we see Jesus talking with this woman, treating her with dignity and respect and unconcerned about his own reputation. He crosses the ethnic barrier. He crosses the gender barrier. And then he crosses the sin barrier. Jesus knew that this woman was immoral. He knew that she was sinful. But that didn't keep him from engaging her. And we too often look at the sins of other people around us that are different than ours. And we avoid them. Forgetting the fact that we are sinners ourselves. And here is the sinless Son of God having a conversation with a woman who is sexually immoral. 
He crosses these barriers because he cares for this woman's soul. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from saving those he came to save. Nothing is going to stop the Savior from saving those he came to save. And we too have to cross barriers in order to reach people for Christ. I'm not saying that we participate in sin. Jesus didn't do that. But what this means is that we need to reach out to others who would never come to church or who would never open a Bible. She wants to talk about gender and ethnicity, but Jesus wants to talk about God and thirst. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Do you see how Jesus turns the conversation? Instead of using the categories that was handed by the culture, Jesus was being countercultural. And we too should use different categories. The culture wants us to use the categories of race and class and gender. But what if we start to ask a whole different set of questions? Jesus uses his thirst and his experience of thirst as an analogy for what all of us do in seeking things that will never satisfy He took the situation that he was in and he pointed to spiritual realities. Right? After feeding the 5,000 with a few loaves, what did Jesus talk about? The bread of life. We should do the same in reaching others. In order to grow in our evangelism, we can ask these questions. How does this situation I'm in relate to the gospel? If the Lord gives me an opportunity to speak about his saving grace here, how does this situation give me an opening? Jesus doesn't ignore the stereotypes, but he wants to go deeper. He uses the earthly idea of thirst to point to the spiritual reality of thirst. Because whatever ethnicity or class or gender... We're all thirsty for something. We're all longing for something, for something to fulfill us, for something to satisfy us. And there's nothing in this world that can. And yet we all buy into the lie that it will. A couple years ago, an ESPN senior writer, Wright Thompson, spent five weeks with the NBA superstar Michael Jordan. I think we all know who Michael Jordan is. I tried to find a a sports reference. I was going to say Tom Brady, but I don't think most of us, maybe everyone knows who Tom Brady is. So this guy spent five weeks with NBA superstar Michael Jordan. And the goal of his time with Jordan was to report how Jordan's life is today post-basketball. Keep in mind that Michael, at the time that this guy was spending these five weeks with him, had a private jet painted to mimic a basketball sneaker. Extravagant houses in multiple cities around America. He owned an NBA franchise. He had a larger sports legacy than any other athlete to date. 
He had wealth and prosperity, a beautiful fiance, a continual dominant presence in the NBA without even being physically able to play. And a life and a career that a majority of people in the world would love to exchange for. But besides of all of this, at the end of these five weeks, Wright Thompson found that Michael Jordan was very unhappy and discontented with life. Turns out that Jordan still desperately yearns for the opportunity to suit back up and play ball again. He has constant fears that he'll be forgotten in the wind by the next generation. And his daily routines consist of him habitually staying busy and active so that he doesn't have long stints of silence. And so Thompson concluded the article that Jordan is now somewhat a prisoner of his own life. How sad. How true is it that the things of this world never completely satisfy? You could have it all, like Michael Jordan. Or you could have nothing, like the Samaritan woman. When it all boils down, we're all thirsty. Jesus knows that everybody is thirsting. Even people who don't think they are thirsting are thirsting. We all drink from something. And so he says, if you knew who it was who spoke to you, if you knew who I was, if you knew the gift of God, the reason I'm in this world, the reason why God has come to this world to save sinners, you would have asked me. All you got to do is ask. You don't have to work for it. You can't purchase it. All you have to do is ask. That's the free offer of the gospel. And while she doesn't understand Jesus' words here, the reader and we understand that the gift of God points back to God so loving the world that he what? He gave his only son. That is the gift of God. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God who will go to the cross and die for the sins of those who believe in him. And he offers living water. Sadly, people have no idea that God has something that he wants to give to them. A lot of people think that they, they're going to be the ones that are going to have to give if they surrender their lives to God. And yet, it is he who gives. The heart of our gospel is the good news about God's free gift. But she doesn't understand the offer. She's still thinking in an earthly way, like Nicodemus did in chapter 3. Look at verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. How do, or where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So she asked, where do you get that living water? And then she asks another question, Are you greater than our father Jacob? And this is a moment in the story in which we kind of understand the situation, but this, she doesn't. Of course, Jesus is greater than Jacob. He's a way bigger deal than Jacob. She doesn't know the significance of the question she's asking. 
But again, Jesus is interested in another conversation. He says in verse 13 and 14, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Your thirst will not be quenched by Jacob's well. You need living water. He's saying that he is something that will completely satisfy her spiritual thirst. But we're still not sure if she's tracking. But her thirst is awakened. And so she says in verse 15, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. It's unclear at what level she's understanding Jesus. But it seems like she thinks he's still talking about physical water. But this should remind us not to be discouraged. Not to be discouraged in our own evangelism. When people are disinterested or distracted or they're not understanding what we're saying. And if we think about our own testimonies, that was true of us at one point. It's true of everybody. Sometimes the work of regeneration is slow. And we need to be patient. But the question for us this morning is this. Are you thirsty? Have you found yourself unsatisfied? Have you drunk from the wells in which our culture tells you that you will be satisfied and have left unsatisfied? Are you thirsty? Is your thirst Awakened. If you're not thirsty yet, then you might not be ready to hear what Jesus has to say next. But if your thirst is awakened, Jesus wants to reveal the root of your thirst. Things start to get tense here. Jesus puts his finger on the wound in her life. This moment is like when you go to the doctor and you're laying down on the examination table and the doctor touches you and says, does that hurt? And you say, no. And then they touch in a different area. And when finally the breath comes back into your lungs, you say, yeah, that's the spot. That's where it hurts. That's what Jesus is doing here in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband And come here. The statement seems to come out of nowhere. But John has already told us in chapter 2 that Jesus knows what is in man. Jesus knows every human being down to the core. He knows exactly where this woman's thirst has led her to find satisfaction. This is a woman who has bounced from man to man to man. And the man whom she's living with is not even her own husband. She's trying to satisfy herself with men. She's been drinking from the wells of intimacy and sexual pleasure with men. And so she says in verse 17, I have no husband. This is the shortest statement she's made in this encounter. Why? Because she's convicted. We've all been in this type of moment. 
when a nerve is struck and you try to dodge the question? Right? Going back to that doctor analogy, my dad is a dentist. And so, you know, growing up getting cavities, oh man, that was a big deal. You thought you had to hide your candy from your parents? My parents knew. Even if I had one piece of candy, the second my dad looked in my mouth, he knew. There would be times in which my dad would use that sharp metal, you know, pointy thing, and he'd dig into my gums really, it felt like he was going really deep. And the pain, oh, that pain was so intense. And yet I, I would hold it all in so that my dad wouldn't know that there was a cavity there. He would ask, does that hurt? And I'm like, no! With almost tears in my eyes. But that's what's happening here. Jesus is touching a nerve, and she doesn't want to go there. She doesn't lie, but she tries to get out of it. This is a painful spot. She tries to say something vague. I have no husband. It's a true statement, but Jesus knows the deeper truth, and he continues to expose the full truth of her immorality. John four seventeen to 18, Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. What is Jesus doing here? He's revealing her sin. Why? Why is Jesus revealing her sin? Keep in mind, this is a private conversation. This isn't out in the open. But he is making her deal with her situation. And he's connecting it to that conversation that they just had about thirst. Between her thirst and where she is likely trying to quench that thirst. So the point here is if we're ever going to see our need for Jesus Christ and the living waters that he freely offers by his grace, we have to have him uncover our sinful hearts. We need to have our sin revealed. You could be like Nicodemus, or you could be like the woman at the well. Both need their sin revealed. Either you're self-righteous, or you're falling into lawlessness. You need to have your sin revealed. And if you're here today and you think that this message isn't about you, you're sadly deceived. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 say this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are all sinners in need of God's cleansing grace. You need to have your sin uncovered Conviction of sin is a good thing. Even though we don't like it, it's a good thing. Jesus is bringing about this conviction of sin so that he can save this woman. 
so that she would drink from the living stream and never have to thirst again. As one commentator says, the gospel is bad news before it's good news. The living water of grace is sweet only to those who know the bitter taste of their sin. But also think about how Jesus interacts with her. He treats this woman as an equal. In a culture where he would be judged for having a conversation with her, he's not concerned about his own reputation. She's probably never met a man who was genuinely interested in her. Who has treated her with such respect and dignity and kindness. And don't miss this. Notice that he is the seventh man. The seventh man in her life. Seven is the biblical number of completion and wholeness. She's been with six men And now she is in the presence of a seventh who can complete her and make her whole. And then in verses 19 to 24, she says, You seem to be a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we should worship. Why is she bringing up the topic of worship here? It kind of seems out of place. But she was thinking... I'm a sinner before God. I must bring an offering for sin. But where do I take it? I have this Jew in front of me. I know that as Samaritans, we go to this mountain, but the Jews worship in the mountain in Jerusalem. What do I do? To her and her people, the cure for sin was sacrifice. But where was the sacrifice to be made? She was concerned about what God desired from her. But she didn't know who to worship. She didn't know where to worship or how to worship. So Jesus says, worship will not happen on this mountain or on the mountain in Jerusalem because there's going to be a new community of believers who will worship God all over the earth. And they will worship God in spirit and in truth. In spirit meaning a changed heart with the spirit that the Lord gives, and in truth, according to God's word. She's a Gentile, and she's going to be a part of that. There's something that is bigger and better that is coming and is here now that Jesus is here. And so something is happening in her heart. And so she says in verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She says, one day someone is coming that will sort everything out. Are you him? Then in verse 26, Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Could you imagine that moment? Think about this. She's talking to the long-awaited Messiah. The Jews waited thousands and thousands of years. And yet this sinful, socially outcast Gentile woman is face to face with the Messiah. He's the Messiah for the Jews, for the Samaritans, for the whole world. 
You have to know who Jesus is if you're ever to come to him. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And now look at what happens in the last section. We see the thirst satisfied. Notice verse 28. This is probably one of the most amazing moments in the Bible. How do we know that this woman found living water? Look at verses 28 to 30. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Don't miss this. Her thirst was satisfied. We know that she found living water. Why? Because she left her water jar. She left her water jar. That water jar was the symbol of her life. The symbol of her sinful life. The symbol of her life because it was empty. She had to bring that jar over and over and over again to get water. Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 13 says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what this woman had done. And that's what we do every time we sin. We try to satisfy our things, or satisfy ourselves with things that will only just make us thirsty again. But here, she left the water jar because she found living water. Something happened. She discovered who Christ really was, and she was converted. And we know this because she went into the town and told everyone. Now, her original errand was to come to this well to fetch water, and it was superseded by a better one. She goes and tells people, come and see. Her thirst had been satisfied And so she says, you need to come meet this person. And notice she hasn't taken an evangelism class. She doesn't have a theology degree. She doesn't know anything about apologetics. She's been a Christian for five minutes. And what's she doing? She's telling people about Jesus. You need to come and meet Jesus. She came to the well in order to avoid being seen by anyone because of her shame. She leaves that well with her shame behind her and seeks out the people of the town to tell them about Jesus. When we see Jesus for who he really is, we leave our water jars and we tell others about him. But how is Jesus able to offer us this living water? How is Jesus able to freely give this living water to people? Well, at the end of John's gospel, there is only one other place where thirst is mentioned. When Jesus hangs on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 28, Jesus says, I thirst. How does Jesus take away your thirst for sin? On the cross. He takes our sin upon himself and thirst under the mighty wrath of God. 
He thirsts under the wrath of God for your sinful thirsting and for my sinful thirsting. He was thirsty so that we would not thirst again. That's the gospel. Horatius Bonner wrote this. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I freely give the living water. Thirsty ones, stoop down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Isaiah 55.1 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And so if you're here today and you're a Christian, be reminded this morning to come over and over again to the wells of salvation, to reject the world's offer to quench your thirst, and to go out and share this good news. And if you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus for living water, if you tried everything and you're not satisfied, if nothing on this earth is satisfying you, maybe it's testimony that you were made for something heavenly. God created us with a thirst that he can only quench through these living waters that Jesus offers. And so stop drinking the things that make you thirsty. I'll say that another way. Turn from your sin. Turn from your sin and believe in Jesus Christ. Come to Jesus. Drink and be satisfied. Jesus is the Savior who offers living water to all thirsty sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the wonderful truth that it contains. Thank you that there, there is no one who is beyond your grace and that salvation is available to all who will hear and receive the truth of the gospel. We thank you for seeking us and sending your Son who offers living water, the gift of forgiveness for sinners, the gift of eternal life for all who believe, the gift of joy and true satisfaction. And as our thirst is satisfied, help us to go into the world to cross boundaries and share the gospel with people who are thirsty and in need of your forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.